Hello there, this is Brian Melanson, the founder and president of M4 Innovation. You've tuned in to this episode of the Altitude Sessions podcast, coming to you from our studio here in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We're really glad you stopped by. You know, this is the spring break edition of the podcast. While you're out there on the beach, or you may be on the mountain hitting that last ski run of the season, we want to be that voice in your head. Let's talk a little healthcare matter. Who needs a book? And you got the Altitude Sessions podcast. Let's go. You know, for us, let's just let's just jump in. Hey, let's let's talk a little bit about what I think is you know another interesting phenomenon, and it, there's there's some things that have that have come out of this. Uh, it's it's basically it's a concept that's happening really all over the the world. It's it's happening at a relatively rapid pace. It's it's something that is starting to take grip. With uh, healthcare, despite the fact healthcare has largely been considered this really complex thing, that's pretty hard to chisel away at. But there, there is this, there is this uh, pretty interesting concept that is that's really called decoupling. And you know, there there have been articles in places like Market Watch and others that have come out recently that have have talked about really this this whole thinking around decoupling the links in the customer value chain. It's talked about a lot, you know, what how's our value chain going to get attacked and you know, if you're a business strategist or if you're a P&L leader, if you're the C level of a, of a company, you know, who's going to attack my value chain? You know, where are people going to erode the value that we're providing customers today and you know, the constant cycle of looking over your shoulder and figuring out what you need to reinvent or what you need to get better at or what you need to discard as far as your business models going forward. This is a you know an interesting little little twist you know uh, this you know there's article out there we'll we'll link it and let you look at it uh, in in the notes but you know that there's they talk about a company called Watch Outfitters that uh, a 17 year old gentleman named Jonas Saya I believe Saya is the last pronouncing it correctly is is an interesting company and it's it kind of fits in this world right now of Airbnb and you know, a lot of the new the, the new um, logistical things that are coming out where instead of having to buy a fleet of cars, you can now rely on other people's assets and just hook up market demand with the asset. You know, this, this is another example. I mean, you know, on the surface, Watch Outfitters just looks like any other online retailer. But... You know, as as the article digs in a little bit, what what the distinction is between this business and most is that the seventeen year old doesn't make or sell the watches. There's a Chinese manufacturer who's been lined up to do that. Doesn't ship any orders. There's a distributor in the U.S. that does that. The payments that propagate the business aren't taken by this organization. Square and PayPal do that. And even the website and the pictures of the product there, that was all outsourced. Every part of the business was was sourced to other vendors that, that could provide those services and do it in a in a quilted way that creates a, ho- a holistic-looking company to the consumer. So what what does this gentleman do? What's the business? 
this 17 year old is extremely good at generating traffic and demand via Facebook. So the business for him is basically, we're going to generate all this buzz. We're going to generate all this traffic. We're going to figure out effectively what connect people to what they want. And then there's going to be this whole backend operation that will effectively collect money. It will effectively line up the logistics of the watch that the individual wants, and it will get it shipped via distribution partner to the customer who bought it. It's it's an interesting phenomenon because again, you know, this is this discussion around breaking or decoupling today what looks like a customer value chain that requires massive infrastructure behind it to make it work. This is the type of often overused term disruptors that are thinking about how to run and build businesses differently. They're thinking about how to patch things and pull things together and best in class this and that to reconstitute what today looks like potentially your product, your service, your offering. Now this has been a theme that we've been we've been on here at M4 and the things we've talked about within our, our think tank environment for the last couple of years. We've we've been calling we don't call it decoupling, we've been calling it the unbundling of insurance. And there's others out there that have the unbundling of finance, the unbundling of the auto, and the unbundling of the bank, and the unbundling—hell, the unbundling of, of baseball. I mean, somebody out there somewhere is thinking through how to unbundle any and everything. And I think that the the viewpoint on all this, though, is that what people are trying to do is they're trying to say that if you look at the sum of an offering with all of the various parts in the value chain, there may be at some point in that value chain inefficiencies or there may be administrative bloat. There may be something that doesn't connect or uh, connect with the customer in the right way. There may be something in there that is nowhere near to the best-in-class technologies that are now servicing uh, consumers in, on that front. And what what people are trying to do now is say, if I take this whole thing, if I if I take the whole whole product or whole offering that people are used to today and if I can slice it apart and then rebuild it in a different way are there ways that we can extract different value by looking at it that way this this is not a new concept it's just some of the new world entrepreneurs are finding ways to build these solutions leveraging assets built by somebody else so they're very asset like companies that are much more delivered on the value of, of marketing and marketing influence and and even brand building and other things. And there are risks associated with these type of companies, which we'll talk about here in a minute. But I, I think that you know there, there's there's a whole lot of of interesting things that that are out there that are kind of like this. And yeah, I, I just I just find it I find it fascinating how this stuff is is coming together. You know, in, in healthcare is an example. I don't. I don't think there's a there. there there's a great example, and you know, we brought it up in the past. But th- this is a great example. Of what's going on right now in direct primary care is an example. And the folks that are trying to build platforms and and are trying to build things that connect employers or consumers directly to, to primary care physicians. 
that may be one of these events that's going on right now, right underneath some of your noses, that is the, the first slice in slicing away aspects of the value chain of the larger risk-based products that you may have. I think that y you can make an argument that if you allow these new, these new primary care-centric solutions that are built around the needs of a, of a consumer and connecting them directly with a physician that controls the upward flow of care when, when it's time, that's like, that's like a step. It's a step toward a different layering in progress that this industry uh, is probably going to go through in the next, you know, <laughs> five, ten years. You start to put it all together and you look at some of the, you know, the, the astronomical valuations that are being bantied around with a lot of these new, completely digital primary care capabilities that are more text-based or, or, or augmented with, with a bot, with a doctor on the back that only does the, the non-transactional work in coordinating ways to actually have the doctor work a little bit more efficiently with the hope that down the line as, these, as the artificial intelligence and other things gets better and regulators more comfortable with it, that we get to a point where it helps primary care doctors become a heck of a lot more efficient. You know, you can, you can make arguments that we are kind of working our way up a ladder when you think about this, this decoupling or unbundling effect. We're working our way up a ladder where it's not too far of a leap to say direct primary care is, is next and there will be, you know, umbrella risk policies built around that environment and there will be networks if even their networks, there'll be referral capabilities and patterns that will be built off primary care relationships to take care of the consumer. A more consumer-centric approach where it's a relationship between the consumer and a, and a centralized doctor who has financial incentives to keep your health the primary concern. And, and it moves away from the world today where, you know, Network infrastructures that are set up in, in healthcare risk products, particularly, are, are more about fencing, at times, fencing people in. This is who you can see, and it doesn't naturally always line up with a primary care doctor's referral pattern. It doesn't always naturally line up with what the consumer needs at the, at the point of need or the service that the consumer may need at the point of need. And that's why we've got this whole in network, out of network thing that, that pops up quite a bit and has led to surprise bill legislation and other things that is being bantied around right now. You know, there are people in this decoupling, unbundled world that say, effectively, fuck networks. Fuck them. We don't need them. Who needs a fucking network? You know, th they're basically out there saying, all you really need is a transparent pricing scheme that people can understand. And in that world, you need an employer that's, willing to pay the bills based on whatever that transparent pricing structure is. And then you set a series of incentives that reward behavior for consumers for picking the, or working with doctors to pick the various services that are high value and lower cost, but without needing a network to do it. Just basically saying, hey, 
doctors, the services that you provide or products, market them as such, position them as such, package it up, put a price on it, and then let consumers come to you based on the demand and let primary care doctors understand the distinction between your price and quality of service compared to that of a peer that, that may be able to perform the similar service. And I, I think that's, that's it's interesting. You know, it, it avoids situations where primary care doc has to refer you to some specialist they don't know from Adam or don't have quality metrics or detailed information on whether that individual is a good good person to, to meet the overall objective that the, the consumer or the patient and the primary care doctor want to want to get done. So anyway, I mean, I think that's that's interesting. And, you know, but you're kind of working it up, though. You know, you can say right now we kind of have this fragmented care where right now the trends are kind of moving more toward people go, you know, go to urgent care, emergent care. They don't have a one-on-one relationship with primary care doctors. You know, you could say that this might be a step because there's been things where insurers and product designs have, have tried to move back to that world saying, hey, let's get people uh, reacquainted with a primary care doc. Let's force them to make a primary care doctor decision so that, that we can start to, at least on paper, say that these folks have, have a relationship. Well, doesn't direct primary care in kind of an unbundling effect saying, you know, because a lot of these doctors say, you know, again, fuck, fuck these networks. I don't want to be in this claims contracting negotiated thing. I'd rather just say I want to charge a value of X a month and I want to come up with a menu and say we cover all of these things for that amount of money. And the things that we don't cover, labs and, and you know, generic pharmaceuticals and other things, here's what, the, what we have that we can offer and what it's going to cost. And at the point of service, I'll run a credit card. I mean, I have been part of a direct primary care practice here in Jacksonville for a few months now, and that, that's effectively here, at least, how, how it works. No billing, no back and forth, and, well, let me check with the insurer, see if this works. I mean, it's just, it, that's, that's how it's set up. And then, and, you know, with the, in the exchange for that, instead of having this, you know, the insurer say, select primary care doc, and then here's our, our contractual relationship with the doctor, and here's what they can and can't do, and they have to bill, and they have to keep all this office staff and infrastructure to do it. You know, the, this, this decoupling effect is, no, you know what we should do? Primary care docs, I don't want to do this shit anymore. I, I would just rather, you know, again, here's, here's my fixed amount, and here's what I'm going to do in, for that amount. And I'm going to be available, and I'm, I may even have a, in some cases, a smaller patient panel and, and other things, more one-on-one interaction and more virtual interaction and so on and so forth. And for that, you know, that's, that's, that, that actually starts to create this, at least this value proposition, again, around primary care. So let's take it a step further again, you know, kind of, kind of going back to what, you know, I think we're really moving toward, you know, in a decade or so, we're really moving toward this world of bytes-based primary care, you know, B-Y-T-E-S, not primary care where you, know, you come out with a bite mark on your on your arm or something like that. I mean, that's that would be kind of weird, right? But, you know, the, the, the bites, digital bites-based primary care is where I think we're, we're ultimately leading toward, which is, not as much of a reliance on a huge primary care infrastructure, which 
syncs up with the doc shortage we've talked about in the past, but really more an emphasis on 24-7, always on, always available, getting smarter by the day, artificial intelligence that knows us, knows our conditions, knows our numbers, so on and so forth, and can help triage where we need to go in the system faster and more efficiently based on insurance policies and the way all that stuff is set up in the background. It all just works in the background. That's a big lift. There's a lot of data and interoperability, and there's regulations of what you can do with that data and other things that are all going to explode onto the forefront and have to be managed through in the, this coming decade. But as a directional vision, I think we're, we're well on our way to that. And again, when you start to see some of the companies that are out there now that are starting to do the more virtual-based assistant work, it's not that far of a leap. It really isn't that far of a leap. This doesn't even feel to me like a moonshot. It just feels like it's a progressive course that we're already on. We're just in a really big boat. We got a lot of water to travel on the ocean to get there, but we're getting there, and we're going to get there. Maybe some rough seas along the way, but that's the kind of stuff that the industry is going to. And when you can start to reduce certain types of care to bites, again, B-Y-T-E-S, maybe, just maybe, maybe, just maybe, we'll actually be able to say, gosh, these are high-value, low-transactional-cost microservices that, that will really have an accretive impact on overall healthcare affordability. It'll even make consumers better users of the system. So I, I, think, that's, I think that's interesting. I mean, I, I think you can look in the ancillary worlds and you can make similar arguments about, you know, the way dental networks are set up today. You know, and are there opportunities there to create more direct contracting capabilities there? I mean, the, the infrastructure is already there. There are companies out there today that do discount dental. There's a lot of discount dental that's set up out there already. And there are infrastructures that, that, that can be leveraged a step further to be smart and just say, I'm going to negotiate directly with the dentist for these services, and this is going to be the cost. And the discount dental plan brings the cost down. And it also guarantees that the dentist for the service won't charge more than X. There won't be some kind of a balance bill moment at the point of service. And if you do that, such a simple change could be a radical change in the dental industry. You know, the dental industry with that that kind of change by by decoupling some of the network value, the leverage points in the network today, it could change overnight and have to figure out, oh shit, maybe now what we need to really be doing is 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 working through point specific solutions for the expensive shit when your mouth's really fucked up that today most of those policies don't cover, right? You know, with the annual maximums and everything else that are embedded in these policies. Maybe at some point it's it's micro-insurance for, you know, getting the jaws of life in somebody's mouth all cleaned up and uh, or, or handling a catastrophic situation where a ladder falls on somebody's face, yeah, you know, or a roof caves in and a beam hits you in the mouth, you know, whatever. Well, that would probably kill you. It will just knock your teeth out. But, you know, you get you get the point. This shit happens, and when it does, the one thing that dental insurance doesn't do is it doesn't cover the shit happens moments. It doesn't. It doesn't cover the when shit happens to you. Dental insurance is not there. 
It's not a catastrophic insurance policy. It doesn't cover the expense of unexpected things in life. So when you think about the the decoupling moments that could be associated with that industry, they're there. They're there, and they're there for people to be thinking about right now. And the infrastructure, there's infrastructure that's there with with the discount dental and with all the algorithmic things and, you know, the, the unbreakable, you know, unhackable blockchain that's been hacked lately and, and those type of things. But those capabilities are out there, and we're going through this this squishy time where stuff's rising to the top, but as it does, there's infrastructure layers and, and capabilities that can be built to look at these industries differently and go, yeah, it's time to do that. So I, I, think, that's, I think that's a real interesting interesting thing, too. Uh, you know, I, I love... I love talking about this stuff. I love talking about the future and, and you know, and it's staying and staying on this because I love, I want you guys to get dreaming, start dreaming, you know, get out of the, the, the day in a doubt doldrums of, of what you do and activate the brain a little bit and start dreaming a little bit, start thinking about where, where can we take my team? Where can we take this, this company? Where can we take this sector of the industry that I'm in? How the hell do I change the industry? Maybe I need to do something differently so I can change it all. Let's do it. Let's start dreaming about it. Let's get there. Let's let's really think about how are we going to impact these next five years? How are we going to impact these next 10 years? Because nobody, nobody is going to make that change happen but you. Nobody. This is not a time anymore where anybody can sit around with their head on the swivel looking around and hoping to God that you find the Savior to the left or the Savior to the right. No. Your turn. Step up. Let's do it. So I, I, I love I love the you know, on this topic, staying on this topic, I, you know, there there's a Harvard Business Review article that was written by Naraj Dewar in uh, May June of twenty eighteen. And it was titled Marketing in the Age of Alexa. I'm just gonna read you a little bit from the top and just, just let that mind, your, that mind of yours, that brilliant mind of yours, just drift, just a bit. I want it to drift, just a little bit. And I'm going to read just a little bit, just read a little bit. And to Mr. Dewar's credit, it's wonderfully written. And there's a point to all this here in a minute. I'm going to get to, I'm kind of closing it all, all the way back. But let's think about this. This again, titled "Marketing in the Age of Alexa." The autonomous car dropped Lori off at her home and then left for its scheduled service at the dealership. It would be back in time to take her to the airport the next morning. On the way into her house, Lori gathered the drone deliveries from the Dropbox and her stoop. The familiar voice of Eve, a next-generation smart assistant like Alexa. Kind of, you know, this is me interjecting my point. Kind of like Wally, Eva, Eva, Eve. Close enough. Back to it. Treated her in the foyer and gently reminded her of the travel plans for her upcoming conference in L.A. Lori hadn't bothered to learn the details since Eve, Eva, had taken care of finding the best flight, seat, and hotel room that her company's expense policy would allow. As she unpacked her grocery delivery, Lori saw that Eve had adjusted her weekly purchases of mitted perishables and adding travel-sized toiletries and sunblock. Calculating that Lori was running low on detergent, and aware she'd be coming home with laundry to do, the bot had ordered more but switched to a new, less expensive brand that was getting good customer reviews. And knowing that Lori wouldn't want to cook, it had arranged for her favorite takeout 
to be delivered upon her return. Thank goodness for Eve, Glory thought to herself. Far-fetched? Not really. A lot of those capabilities today are there. What is still coming together is some of the intelligence and, and the massive data merging and interoperability and other things that it takes to, to pull all that all together. And I don't know if that's ever a journey that will fully be achieved by any company. I think there's always going to be room to run and get better on things like that and to get more micro-targeted and continue to just this insatiable desire to learn more and more about every one of us little godlike consumers that are out here. What do we want? What do we need? Anticipate it. Give it to us. Give it to us. Make it easy on me. Free me up. Free my mind up so I can, I don't know, rant in a pissed off mood on Twitter four more hours a day. I mean, shit, I have no idea. Something. But with all this extra time, we'll do something. But all the technology's here. I mean, it's, you know, a lot of this stuff, it, it's it's here. I mean, and, and you know, there, there's a whole, a whole lot of stuff out here about which data can be collected and which companies can use stuff with that data. And, you know, again, regulatory stuff going to get here. And the regulators are going to have to catch up with some of this stuff because God Almighty is this stuff moving fast right now. But as, as, it, all, as it all plays out, I mean, there, there's, just, there's just things there. And, and the point to this article that I thought was great was that, you know, basically – there, there is, there's a statement here that says that consumers' allegiance will shift from trusted brands to a trusted AI assistant. That's the change that's going to be made. Thank goodness for Eve. Thank God. Thank God for Eve. Not thank God for Delta Dental. Not thank God for Walmart. Not thank God for Target or thank God for you know, Lulamon. Thank God for... Sears, uh, fuck Sears, is, we said that for a while. So anyway, anyway, you know, as as we as as we as we think through this, it's pretty it's it's pretty amazing. You think about all this money, time, effort, energy today that is spent on branding. And and if this pl- plays true, it's like the allegiance will shift from trusted brands to this trusted AI assistant. I don't know, just interesting stuff, and. Certainly, as we think through the next five to ten years, there's a lot of questions that come into, you know, what does this mean for us? And, you know, and, and we talk a lot in our group about distribution models and products and, you know, future convergence of commercial and policy interests and all that stuff and how it all comes together in these formulate discussions. And what's this going to look like? And what's the, what are these these years going to look like and everything else? And then you got this. It's like, hmm, I mean, this is this is this is where it all comes together. Right. So I, I, I just think that that stuff is interesting. It goes back to what I said in the last podcast, Tim O'Reilly, just to summarize it, not quote it exactly. When you think about the, this move to you know the, these disruptive moments, if you will, and when you look at what people are trying to do when they take digital technology, they're really trying to disrupt with digital technologies, they're not seeking to take what you find familiar today, replicate it, make it better. They're seeking ways to take what you know is familiar today and eliminate it. You know, sticking on the topic of voice assistance, you know, there, there's a Gartner um, article that came out, predictions in 2017, and, you know, a couple of the more bold things that were in there is that, you know, they said, you know, by 2020, 30% of all web sessions will be done without a screen. 
pretty that, that, that's 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 a fascinating statement. I I don't know if that that number is really going to hit by 2020, but I think it's getting there. I think I think if you look at uh, the proliferation of voice assistants, if you look at the proliferation of even smartphones for smartphone based assistants and you know every Bose speaker, you know that that I have now has some listening device in it, a Bose device in it or an Alexa-based listening device in it, or a Google Assistant thing that's in your thermostat. I mean, there's, there's just, there's something listening in all this stuff. A little creepy? <laughs> yeah, probably. But it's there, and this stuff is, is listening, and it's setting up this world where the convenience and knowing you, it may move beyond the screen. So think about some of the, the tactical real-life things that you should be thinking about now. Remember all this time, effort, energy, money that was put into all these enrollment tools and digitizing the insurance enrollment experience? Not all that stuff's going to go away because I think there's there's wet signatures and authenticated signatures and you know DocuSign like stuff that you're still going to have to do to say, yeah, I really want to buy this twenty five thousand dollar product. I don't think you can just do that with with a voice assistant and kind of like that. Super Bowl commercial with, with uh, I think it was Harrison Ford, where, where the, the dog kept ordering dog food and it shows up on the, you know, on a big pallet on the truck in front of the house. I don't think we're going to be able to do that with insurance folks, but I do, th- I do think that, I do think that we're in this, this period where certainly voice is going to enter into this, a lot of this, and it's going to impact and, you know, effectuate how the distribution models of the future are going to look. It's going to effectuate how people interact with your product going forward. I mean, it may be a world where in 10 years, it's actually a digital assistant that's digging into your policy manuals, digging into your rate structure. It's, it's digging into, you know, your, your recent changes and how you cover this versus that, knowing that, you know, the beloved consumer, the omnipotent little being, the God that, that this, this, personal assistant is wrapped around this virtual person personal assistant is wrapped around is is going to need coverage and it's going to need it this way and it's going to need it in this form and it can only be for this amount of money and these are the trade-offs and it's going to do all that work in the background and the consumer is just going to say hey eve or i don't know you know there's a digression why, why are we naming like virtual assistants things like bud hey bud bud it's time for some fucking insurance, man. Can you help me? You know, I'm just, you know, I don't, it's just sidebar in there. But, but, you know, I guess that's just not as, it's just not as cool from a marketing perspective. Name it Bud or Dick or, you know, Ted. Yo, Ted. It's time, man. Uh, you know, we gotta go to the, uh, you know, the mountain hill climb thing that we just had here in Jackson. Let's do it, brother. So, you know, set me up. I, I guess Eve and, Alexa and others just far, far cooler. But but the bottom line is that that these things are going to be wrapped around you. And they're going to do a lot of this background work and your products and strategy models and your data models and your the way you interact with these assistants. That creates a, a kind of an interesting world. It also creates a world where you, you have to make some decisions. Do you want that to happen or are you not? You're like, God, do I want to give all this power to some some virtual assistant that's that's going to be run by you know a corporation like Amazon or or Google or, or you know do I, do I is that is that what I want for my business? And then the other question is is in your strategy you look forward is there an inevitability to that where it's going to come to that or are we going to see this technology as it has whittle down and we'll have more more specialist 
bots, you know, it won't be just be Alexa, it'll be, you know, I know Sophie. Hey Sophie. You know, and Sophie's your travel insurance expert. So, you know, I, I think that there are some interesting moments and interesting things coming on that front that certainly I don't think you put it too far off your board. I know you gotta tactically execute on things today, but you can't go too far off your board because this stuff is coming. It's coming. And you know, when we surveyed a group of fifty ish or so executives last year on distribution models, things like voice really weren't high up on the screen. I, I guess I can kind of get that because there's day in and day out things about products and how much we pay for it and how can we be more, be more efficient and how do we get more out of the people that we're paying so that we, you know, they can help us manage costs or manage a growth block of business or, you know, from an insurer perspective, you know, that's what they're thinking about from the employer perspective. How do we get more data in and just know how the hell we can stem the tide on what we're spending money on? Let's just, let's start there. Let's just get, can I get like, you know, can a brother get like 10 recommendations back on how to save money on my, my employees? You know, you know, I, I know that that's kind of what, you know, where we are today and walking and tackling the capabilities that are out there are doing some really good work on that, but not to lose sight on these five and 10 year things. Cause there, there are some really important things that are shifting that are worth talking about, debating, and then determining the relevance of these shifts to your business. Let's talk a little bit about career stuff. Just really, really, really quickly been really taken with the you know book bad blood with elizabeth holmes and you know over i mean gosh we've probably stomped on this a hundred times with uh, you know what went on with theranos and there's an hbo draw, uh, documentary that came out with the the inventor and you can listen to that lovely deep voice that she likes to project out there um interesting stuff interesting documentary you know about the whole Edison and everything else. You know, here's the point I want to take away from that, and that is all the the press. And when you look, watch the the inventor as a as, as a reference point, my God, did she do a lot of PR and press? And was she out there all the time promoting, 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 promoting? My my fear is, you know, when all these articles started coming out, and we can do all these things and we're going to change the world. It started drawing comparisons to Steve Jobs and, you know, she's the next Steve Jobs, the next coming. I've never seen anybody like her. She's amazing. And and here's here's the point where you read Bad Blood and you're like, God, there's a lot of bad shit that, that went on in that, that organization. But here's why I think some of that happened. When you're anointed the second coming of Christ effectively in, in – uh, you know, the community like Silicon Valley. And you're anointed that at an incredibly young age. All of a sudden, the runway where youth and failure collide doesn't exist. So a lot of the behaviors that were made were youthful and maybe inexperienced, maybe driven by a bunch of of issues, but driven by a driven by a bunch of pressures from the market to deliver on this thing and, and to, to ascend to the throne where you've already been bequeathed the next jobs, the next great inventor. That's just, it's not, it's not a fair starting point for someone who starts a company at 19 years old to, to get that kind of comparison and to live under that kind of pressure um, and honestly probably even raise that kind of money to build a business to some extent. I mean, I know there are people in Silicon Valley say, look, we gave it to other young folks and look what they did. I get it. But I, I still think that there I still think those examples are 
are a little bit rarer, and I and I also believe that these these moments have leadership learning lessons in them, and even lessons for you when you're managing the next great prodigy on your team. You anoint that prodigy too too early, the pressure to perform moves up to such an extent that you might eliminate the possibility that failure is an option. In Elizabeth Holmes' scenario, I don't think she felt failure was an option, so therefore there was a lot of obfuscating and uh, a lot of deceit and other things that went on as that business progressed and the pressure picked up to perform and actually deliver the market solution that that was promised. And what I find interesting is the comparison to Steve Jobs is that what a lot of people forget when you deliver you know, game-changing, idea-changing things in the world, like the iPhone and like the iPod and, you know, the iMac and all those things, when you, when you do that work, a lot of your fuck-ups are forgotten. A lot of people forget, you know, when Steve Jobs was younger, that Elizabeth Holmes age and even a little beyond that, you know, he, he made mistakes. You know, there's another, there's a Peter Sims article that was in, in Harvard Business Review as well in January 2013, talks about the same thing. It says, hey, look, there were a number, he said, points out five mistakes, I'll just do a couple. There were a m- number of things that Steve Jobs fucked up. This people forgot about it because his successes way outweighed the fuck-ups. But he, he screwed up, you know, thinking that Pixar was really a hardware company, not a company that was going to revolutionize digital animated film. And the value was really in the quality of the films that were being created. That wasn't realized until way down the line, when after Steve even tried to sell Pixar at break even many, many years prior, around 50 million bucks, you know, he ended up, you know, almost accidentally. So you sell it to, to Disney at a realized value of $7.4 billion. And that was in, in 2006. But people, people forget, you know, he thought the value was in the technology because he was a technology inventor and that was his viewpoint. The viewpoint of the market was much bigger. It was, no, it's not the technology is great. But it's what the technology creates that matters. And, and how the technology unleashes this new wave of creativity and other things. That's what matters. And, and how we can build new, new um, movies and th- that are more graphically appealing and beautiful and, and all those things. And uh, it allows us to connect with audiences a different way. That's where the value is. You're actually changing the face of animation forever. More than technology. You know, you go back and look at the early product, Lisa. You know, the Lisa, the Apple III uh, you know, there, there's a lot of fuck-ups along the way before we got to the I generation, the I, I, I. So my, my, my finer point on this, Elizabeth Holmes, sometimes we anoint people as gurus and as market changers and game changers too early. And we don't give them the environment to allow them to take that unbelievably special gift and fuck up with it every once in a while. Because, you know, uh, the path of true invention and the path of true entrepreneurship is all about making mistakes. Those mistakes actually create a ladder. Eventually, you hope gets you to heaven. But there, there, there's a ladder that you have to take to get you there. And it's sure as hell and just paved with nothing but solid success. It's not a straight line of just nothing but success. And if you ever run into someone like that who tells you they've only, been, they've only known success and never known failure, turn around and run away from that son of a bitch as fast as you can. Because that's, that's, that ain't true. All right. Hope you had a good time. Spring break edition. Enjoy time on the beach. Enjoy time with the family. Uh, you know, wrapping up here, formulate 
Atlanta coming up in July, July 15 to 17, close to being full. If you want to be part of private discussions like this on distribution of product, get there. Call us. You know, call us or email us. Hello at m4innovation.com. M, the number four, innovation.com. If you're loving the podcast, hey, support the podcast. This is a, a sponsor, ad-free environment. This is something we do for you as, as healthcare executives and as people that are interested in healthcare. But if you like it, come on in, man. We'll take your support. We'll get you some a really cool Altitude Sessions sticker to slap on your laptop. Start supporting and showing the brand. We appreciate that. So, again, thanks for listening. You know, engage in the debate with us. Connect with us. We'd love to talk a little bit more about some of these issues beyond the 30 to 45 minutes we spend every couple of weeks. But for certain, we look forward to the next episode. We look forward to your continued support of what we're doing here. We appreciate it. We appreciate you. Go out and do something special these next couple of weeks. Tell us about it. Until then, we'll talk to you soon.